Uh, good morning. It's good to be with you guys today. Uh, welcome to our family gathering. We're uh, continuing in the book of Romans, following Paul down the rabbit hole, as it were, of his argumentation. Um, it's going to be a little tricky today. I'm going to be honest with you right up front. So we're going to need a lot of patience with one another, but uh, we'll get there in the end. Uh, but we're we're reconstructing Romans. We're looking at the first eight chapters primarily of this letter uh, to the churches of Rome, and we're reconstructing the uh, the context, as it were, of this letter. We're paying careful attention to the people that it was written to and what Paul is actually saying to them before we understand what Paul is saying and what God is saying to us, because these things matter. The two are connected. So what we find is that Romans is a letter that's written to a fractured church made up of Jews and Gentile believers in Jesus. And the problem is that one group that Paul calls the weak are forcing the other group that he calls the strong to submit to Jewish laws and customs in order to be considered fully Christian. They have to do all the Jewish things. And the weak is used to calling the shots. They're used to making everybody submit to these things because that's just the way th things were. But they were away for 10 years, and now they're back, and now another group of people is in charge, and this is scandalizing their consciences. They're not okay with this. So Paul is preaching the gospel, but guess who he's preaching it to? To Christians, because it turns out Christians need the gospel too. They need the gospel first, and this is what Paul is doing. Because uh, the gospel or the good news of Jesus is the only hope that these people have to make peace, thank you so much, hon, in this fractured situation. So let's continue where we left off last week. We're going to be in Romans 3, the first 26 verses. What advantage then, Paul says, is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar. As it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, then what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? Brackets, I am using a human argument here. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that, they, that we say, let us do evil that good may result? Their condemnation is just. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? speaking of, of Jewish believers in Jesus. Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. Where, Where is the... Where is the one who does good? Not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. 
Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Cool? <laughs> this is God's word. Let me distract you for a second and talk about the Marvel Cinematic Universe, shall we? <laughs> I am a huge MCU fan. Uh, I've watched, I think, every single movie more than once and all of the TV shows along the way. And one of my favorite shows, another season, is coming out this week. You know what it is? Are you anticipating this too? No, nobody. Okay, just me. That's fine. Uh, it's it's Loki season two. So that was that show that happened in 2020 when we were all in lockdown. Um, and it was good, right? It was really good. It sort of introduced the whole multiverse idea. All that's besides the point. Um, the character Loki, though, is a, is a mischievous guy, right? He says one thing and he does another. He's constantly double-faced. He's, he's always promising one thing and then backstabbing, particularly his brother all the time. And eventually his brother starts to get wind of this and figure it out and, and treat him uh, according to Loki's character. Um, but this, this character is based on a Norse god by the same, the, the, who goes by the same name, a god of mischief and deceit, who's always undermining the good things that the other gods are trying to do. And it turns out that this, this idea of a deity who is always messing things up and breaking their word, it's not just in Norse mythology, it's in every mythology. There's always a god somewhere in the pantheon of gods in every cultural understanding who makes a word and then breaks a word, makes a promise and then gets out of it, covenants with people, and then weasels their way out. It's part of the construction of how humans have tried to grapple with the, the presence and the problem of evil in the world. The reason that bad things happen, like earthquakes and people who break their words. Well, they're just being like this particular God. Humans have been struggling with this for a long, long, long time. Is our God the same way? No. 
The good news that we proclaim today is that our God, unlike the gods who break their word, our God is faithful. He keeps his promises. And God's faithfulness, particularly to us, is seen most clearly, most brightly, in Jesus's faithfulness to God, that he was faithful even unto death. In him, God at the very same time fulfills his promise to redeem us and to ransom us from the sin that separates us from each other. And so his invitation to you today is to rediscover whatever degree of trust you can give to him. Even if you can't comprehend how it all works out or even who he chooses to be faithful to. Now, back to Romans 3. Paul is continuing his message to the weak, who, who he labels the weak in Rome. Who's those Christians who hold to a Jewish heritage and who are forcing Gentiles to submit to Jewish law because this is what is necessary for them to be considered equal. And to understand what in the world Paul is saying throughout this chapter, um, we have to keep in mind that Paul, what Paul just said to them in chapter 2 presents a huge scandal to Jewish believers. Huge. Because they're thinking to themselves, I mean, Paul has just said that the Gentiles are acceptable as Gentiles. They don't need to become like you to become like me. They get to be part of this. And so for, for, for someone who is uh, steeped in the Jewish law, the Jewish understanding of the world, to them, they're thinking, well, if God's accepting them as they are, if they don't have to conform to the same law of God for, for God to work in and through them, does that mean that God has been unfaithful to Israel? Is he playing a trick on us? Is he unfaithful to us? Has he moved on? Because I don't know if you're aware of this, Paul, but God made promises to us. He committed himself to us. He bound himself to us. There's this thing called covenant. I don't know if you heard of it. But God literally put his own life on the line and said that if this covenant is broken, let me be damned. That's what he promised to us. Is God unfaithful? In Romans 3, as um, hard as it is to follow, is Paul's resounding no. It's his way of saying no. That God has, in fact, been faithful. And he, 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 he kind of throws the argument back on the people that are accusing him by saying, if we're going to talk about unfaithfulness at all, let's go ahead and talk about Israel. Let's talk about our forefathers and how they were unfaithful to the promises of God. Let's talk about how they were to show off God's faithfulness and righteousness to the nations, how they were to be a light in the darkness, how they were to open the way for everyone to taste and see that the Lord is good, and how all of that didn't happen. Now, before we... 21st century non-Jewish Christians sort of look down our nose at, uh, at, at this group that we like to say, you know, has failed. Um, the reason that Israel was unable to remain faithful is because, guess what? 
They're just like everybody else. They're just like all of us who fail. All of us who set out uh, with big, grandiose schemes to make the world a better place and then find it more difficult than we thought when we started out. All of us who make promises to the people that we love and then fail to make good on those promises. They're just like us. And the reason that they're just like us is because they, like us, and everyone else, are under the power of sin. Now, time out. Can I pause for a second and do like a little bit of a sidebar and put my teaching hat on? Because it's impossible to understand what Paul is talking about if we don't get the language of what he's talking about. So I need to be like a seminary professor for like 30 seconds. Is that okay? All right, I'm sorry, but this it has to happen. When Paul talks about sin in Romans, he is not talking about our failure to meet some moral standard of holiness. I'm going to say that again. He is not talking about our failure to meet some standard of perfection or holiness. This is how sin almost exclusively gets talked about in Christian circles. When Paul talks about sin in Romans, he talks about it as a cosmic force that hijacks us to do things that break the world rather than restore the world. Do you see what I'm saying? He thinks about sin as a power and principality in which we live underneath the influence of rather than some moralistic code that we all break. That the reason that we destroy good relationships rather than build them up, the reason that we make violence and hostility rather than peace and shalom, is, I mean, look at verse 9, because we're hostage to the power of sin. He thinks about it as a demonic force, at least here in Romans, not a list of rules that we fail to keep. All right, on pause. That was like 30 seconds, right? It's a preacher's 30. <laughs> okay, so Paul cites, to, to prove his point, Paul cites Old Testament passages um, that show that Israel is underneath this power, that it's being influenced and has been influenced by this power. He quotes things like the, the Psalms and Isaiah. Now, here's the key, because originally these passages were all written about Gentiles. They were all to talk about how worthless they are and how Israel is different from all the other nations. But notice what Paul is doing. He specifically quotes them to talk about the Jewish contingent within this church. He applies all those passages that talk about they and them to we and us. He brings it home. I mean, we already know by now, we were only four weeks in, and we know Paul loves to turn the tables on people who think that they have opted out from the wickedness of everybody else. He loves to do it. It's like his MO. And here he's doing it again. He's doing it again. Now, why would Paul do this other than the fact that he seems to love to bait people into arguments? Well, look at the language that he uses. Look at the verses that he picks. And, and sandwiches together to present this to these Jewish believers. Most of them talk about what? 
They talk about body parts that do destructive work. Body parts that do destructive work. Throats, tongues, lips, mouths, feet, ear, or eyes. Later in Romans, Paul's going to talk about the Christian community. And guess what metaphor he's going to use? The body of Christ. The body of Christ. Now, why would Paul pick out all these verses that talk about body parts doing destructive work and then say to the Jewish people, you guys are the ones that are perpetrating this on everybody else? Because he's saying, in essence, you guys think that by clinging to the law, you're going to bring about righteousness and restoration for everyone, you and everyone else in Rome. But the reality is you're still under the power of sin. The work that you're actually doing because you're enslaved to this cosmic force, it's destroying the body of Christ. It's having the opposite effect than the one you anticipate. You think you're bringing about peace by making everyone submit, but ruin and misery mark your ways. This is why Paul's verdict on them in verse 20 is therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by what? By the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Notice, friends, notice Paul is not making a universal declaration about people who try to earn their salvation by doing good things. This is not Paul's aim. He's not trying to show us that we all try to work for our salvation, but it's given to us by grace, so stop trying to earn it. That's not his goal. He's revealing the tactics that the Jewish Christians, the people who already believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior, he's revealing their tactics as doomed from the jump. You think you're bringing peace? Mm-mm. He's saying the law can't vindicate that you're bringing the right-making ability to God to Rome because the law was never intended to do that work. The only thing that the law can do is show you how much sin is having its way in and through you. This is a little bit like God talking to Cain, if you remember this. When he has this little powwow with Cain, who's harboring hatred for his brother, what does he say to Cain? Sin wants to have its way with you. It's overtaking you. And if you don't subdue it, it's going to do immense destruction for you and your brother. This is Paul's message to these believers in Rome. And the problem again, because we've heard this, heard Romans 3 in an entirely different category, but the Jews think that they can bring shalom to Rome, justice and righteousness, by observing the law on behalf of the sinners in their community. They think they're doing a good thing. By the way, can I teach for another 10 seconds? This is known as performative righteousness. This is what the Pharisees do on behalf of Israel when they tithe their spice rack and fast every seven days. It's not because they think that they um, are like 
it's not that they're legalistic and they're earning God's favor. They think that they're so good that because they do these things, their goodness will rub off on all the rest of the nation. That's why they do it. And what does Jesus say to them? He says to them, you tithe your spice rack and you do all these acts of piety, but you forget the greater acts of the law, which is righteousness and justice and care for the poor. You're performing righteousness in the wrong way. There are people starving in the streets and you're tithing your spice rack to get more credit on their behalf. You're doing them no service with your works of the law. And the, the, these friends of Paul, like the, these brothers and sisters of Paul who share his heritage, like let's, let's go ahead and, and believe the best about them. Let, let's go ahead and, and, and believe that most of us come by our antipathies honestly. Most of us aren't trying to ruin the world with our good deeds. We're actually trying to make the world a better place. And these folks are too. And Paul's trying to get them to see not just their motivation, but the effect of what they're doing on their brothers and sisters. This is a big thing that we need to wrestle with, family. Because I think we do this all the time. We think that because we have the law and we have God on our side, that it doesn't matter what we do. The effect, as long as we have the right motivation. Well, my heart was in the right place. Yes, but God holds us accountable to the effects of our actions, not just whether we had a good heart in doing them, especially when it comes to making other people submit to the things that we hold as God's word. Paul is saying that the law, by its very nature, it separates Israel from other nations. That's what it was meant to do. It was meant to mark them out. But now God is uniting people from every nation, so the law can't broker the peace that you want to bring. It can only serve to continue the separation that you're experiencing. But he also says, guess what? You don't need to trust in that law anymore. Because the good news that we proclaim today, family, is that our God is faithful our God is so faithful. He keeps his promises. And God's faithfulness to us is seen so clearly in Jesus' faithfulness. Faithfulness unto death. In Jesus, God, at the same time, he fulfills his promises to redeem us and everyone. And he ransoms us from the power of sin that separates us from each other. And his invitation to you today is to trust him with whatever trust you can give, even if you can't comprehend how it all works out or who God chooses to give his faithfulness to. In verse 21, Paul talks about the new way that God shows off his faithfulness, the way that, um, that, that wasn't anticipated. And it's a faithfulness that's shown off not just to Jewish believers, but to Jews and Gentiles, everybody gets to experience this faithfulness. He says that the law predicted this way of faithfulness, that God is faithful. He's proven trustworthy by giving us Jesus, who was faithful in a way that Israel never could be. Because unlike everyone who came before him, 
Jesus is not subdued by the power of sin. You know, in the wilderness, when Jesus, I mean, we're going to get into this when Paul compares Adam to Jesus, but you know, in the wilderness, when Jesus is tempted three times and overcomes those, each of those are demonstrations that Jesus is not under the same power as Adam, which is under the same, which we are all under the same power. Jesus succeeds where all of us fail. Now, I have to get into the weeds again. I'm sorry. This is the third time. I feel like I'm transgressing your trust. But it's really important to try to follow this, okay? It is the faithfulness of Jesus to God that shows God's justice-making righteousness. I'm going to say it again. Yeah, yeah. It is the faithfulness of Jesus that shows that God can be trusted to bring the world back together again. To make relationships right again. That's what righteousness means, right relationships. That word righteousness can also be translated justice. God will be just because he's just, and we know that he's just because Jesus is faithful. Now, where, where did you read that, Jay? Where did you see that? Because I don't see that anywhere in Romans 3. I've been tracking along with you the whole time, and I'm reading it, and I don't see any. It's not there. Well, it's not there because it's not there in the NIV. The closest we get is in verse 22 when it says, this righteousness, God's right-making ability, is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. This is where we get into the weeds. Faith in Jesus can also be translated as the faithfulness of Jesus. You can translate it both ways. You can do this because it's the Greek genitive form. Now, again, I'm not, I'm not going to get into, like, there are books this thick that go over all of this. I can give some of them to you afterwards if you'd really like to go down this rabbit hole. Um, and I'll geek out with you afterwards if you want to. It's, it's good for me. I'm trying not to geek out. I really am. But follow along, okay? It's saying God's righteousness, his right-making ability, his ability to put broken things right again, things like physical bodies and social bodies, to bring healing and justice and reconciling peace. All of this is possible because Jesus was faithful to God even unto death. He succeeded where humanity fails. See, increasingly, scholars see Romans 3.22, uh, and by the way, lots of other places where this Greek genitive is used, as talking about Jesus's faith, not our faith. Jesus's faithfulness not our belief. In fact, um, the Common English Bible translates this very same verse, just so you can see it, as God's righteousness comes through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who have faith in him. Doesn't that flow? What do we have faith in? We don't have faith in our faith. We don't have faith in our belief. What do we have faith in? The fact that Jesus is faithful for us on our behalf in a way that we can't. 
Why, why am I making such a big deal out of this? Well, remember when I said that the conflict between the strong and the weak is the, is the hermeneutical key to unlock every, almost every line in the book of Romans? This is one of them. See, if we don't translate this closer to the Common English Bible's version, then God's righteousness, well, it becomes like an individual achievement that we gain before God because we believe in Jesus. It becomes a, a medal that God pins to our chest because Jesus earned it for us because he performed the law in our place. That's typically the way that the gospel gets constructed. That's the way I've preached it before. And there are only a couple problems with that construction. The first problem is that nowhere does Paul ever say that Jesus performs the law on our behalf. Nowhere. That's a shocking statement. Do a word search for the righteousness of Jesus and see what comes up. You're going to get goose eggs. The second problem is, is this, this construction, this faith equals righteous standing before God. It has nothing to do with the problem that Paul's addressing in Romans 3. It has nothing to do with the issue that he's so cranked up about. Remember, Paul's not trying to get individuals to quit, to quit earning God's righteousness so that they can get to heaven. He's trying to get Christians to quit clinging to a system that divides them. And he wants them desperately to trust that in Jesus, God has been faithful to Israel and he's being faithful to the rest of humanity at the same time. That's why his very next words are, there is no distinction, no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. In other words, everyone, family, everyone, everyone you know, everyone you've ever met, everyone of a, of a non-Jewish heritage, Jewish heritage, it doesn't matter. We're all in the same boat. We've all given in to the power of sin and we've all brought less than the glory of God to the world. But there's good news. Because in Jesus, we're all vindicated from that history. We're all set free from the story that sin declares over our lives. We're all redeemed from these stories. And God is putting us back into relationship with Him and with each other. How does He do that? Verse 25. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Jesus sets us free from the destruction-making ability because of sin's power over us by ransoming us back with his blood. He died to put our hostility to death. See, th this is Paul saying to well-meaning believers in Rome, the very thing that you want to do here, preserve a people for God's name and bring peace to the city, God is doing that. He's doing it in a way that includes both you and your brothers and sisters from other nations. 
And Jesus' death is the key. It changes everything. God isn't playing a trick on Jewish people. He's expanding who gets to be part of the restoration of the whole world. He's recruiting people from every tribe and nation for this project. And you get to be a part of it too. Why is God doing this? Verse 26, he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. God does the justifying. He's the one who decides who's in and who's out. And he's ready to include any and everyone in his redemption project of creation who has enough trust to know that he can be trusted with that project. Does that make sense? How much trust do you have today in this God? Are you consumed with the fact that he might be playing a trick on the world? Have you seen him as um, a God who is only interested in ransoming a few elect people and sending the rest to hell? Or do you have or do you have the trust to believe that God may in fact be more generous than everyone you've ever met and every God who has come along the pike named Loki or whatever the heck else? Because our God, his name is Jesus. And unlike the rest of the pantheon, who seems more interested in himself than in humanity, Jesus is the one who pours himself out to demonstrate God's faithfulness that he can be trusted. That God himself put himself on the line for us and for the rest of the world because he's not giving up on this world. The good news we proclaim today, family, is that God is faithful. He keeps his promises. He's faithful to the end. And it's most clearly seen in the fact that Jesus is faithful to God. He demonstrates what God looks like, what his love lives like, even, even if it causes his own death. And so in Jesus, God is at the same time fulfilling his promises to redeem us, and he's ransoming us from the sin that separates all of us from each other. And he invites you today to trust him even if you can't comprehend all this, how all this works out. Now, in the end, the Jewish Christians, they have more trust in the law as they've come to understand it than they do in Jesus who's bringing in those who don't meet their standards. And friends, I think this continues to be a problem for us. It's not just for Jewish Christians but it's for Jersey Christians like us. That if we have more faith in the way that we've defined and determined what faith should look like, than we do in Jesus' ability to make everyone right with God, then we have not yet trusted Jesus. And that's a big temptation for people that uh, dedicate time on a Sunday morning to come to a building like this serious religious folks like us. It's a temptation to replace faith in a person with faith in our thinking, faith in our constructs, faith in our understandings, faith in our doctrines, faith in our answers. Because friends, when this happens, we become rigid and defensive and antagonistic and insecure. 
We make enemies out of people that we're supposed to befriend and love. We're unable to be flexible and to repent and to change our mind. We have to convince everyone of the ways that they're wrong rather than hold our own convictions with an open hand. Paul's not trying to talk people out of their convictions here. He's trying to get them to see that they can hold it with an open hand because if they don't unclench their fist, they're not going to be able to hold on to Jesus. To my faith is in my convictions, then anyone who contradicts those convictions is a threat to the very ground on which I understand my faith. But if truth is in Jesus, if goodness is found in his faithfulness to me and everyone I disagree with, like if God can be trusted to work out all their junk and mine too, well then my faith isn't fragile anymore because it's in him, not me. I'm free to live at peace. I was chatting with a, a wise friend about this uh, this week, and um, and she said this. I want to I want to read to you what she wrote to me. Uh, she says, "Letting go of the stranglehold of my interpretation of the law, and my need for myself and others to get it right, has led me to peace, love, inclusion, patience, kindness, gentleness. Sounds like the fruit of the spirit to me." both with myself and with others. It's allowed me to look at all the people around me who are doing the work of Jesus, social justice, care for the immigrant, the poor, the widow, and to join them without worrying who has the right interpretation of the law. It's meant that I can experience the life of Jesus with Jesus here and now, following in his mission and his vision for the world without worrying about who really gets it and who doesn't. Now she's right. So letting go of our stranglehold of interpretation allows us to cling to Jesus and to receive his life and everyone as a gift of God's faithfulness, to know that Jesus is God and God is rescuing the world from the tyranny of sin so I don't need to manage other people's sin or what they believe. I get to rest in the fact that even I can be wrong about something. Even I can change. I mentioned it already. I used to see Romans 3 in a completely different way. I've changed my mind entirely on this passage. And guess what? God wasn't justifying me because I got it then right or because I get it right now. He's justifying me because Jesus is faithful to me. And I can learn and grow and change just like you can. This is good news because if you, if you had like, if you were like, hanging on by a thread as I'm rushing through Romans 3, and you're like, I don't know what's going on. I can't make heads or tails of this. Guess what? It's okay. <laughs> it's okay. Because we can live not knowing how everything works because the goal of our faith is not certainty. It's trust. It's trust. Surrender. Let's respond today by not just deciding to become smarter or to get things right, Let's decide to turn whatever trust we sense God giving us back into worship by giving our bodies as living sacrifices. So I'm going to pray in a second, and here's, here's the essence of what we're going to pray. Father, I name and submit the ways that I've failed to trust you by blank. Maybe it's a, a, a cling to a conviction 
whatever it is for you. Help me to trust and to love you even as I wrestle with these things. I'm not coming to you for answers. I'm coming to you for love and surrender. And then we'll pray and say amen. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we do come before you uh, with heads swimming from all the details that we uh, are trying to pick up from Paul's crazy arguments here. But hopefully, Lord, hopefully we hear his heart and the heart of the Spirit of God at work behind him, that what it's really about is trust. Trust that you are faithful. Trust that you know how to put the world back together better than we do. Trust that you know how to handle people's unbelief. Trust that even if we get our interpretation of your word wrong, that in the end, Jesus is the one who justifies. God, would, would we name and submit the ways that we failed to trust you? We present them to you. And we ask that you would come and help us to give you whatever trust we have, even as we wrestle with these things. We don't come to you just for answers alone. We come to you to receive your love and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.